Good now. Okay. So what we're going to do is, Ken, you are going, <laughs> you're going to magically pick up where you left off. But yeah, so. Uh, hey, listen, you're taking advantage of my short-term memory now, yeah. but no question about it. It was a great thought that segues into what we're talking about today. Um, this uh, band, I believe in Texas, was, uh, you know, ruining the fact uh, that they weren't progressing perhaps as fast as they should. And our session was on uh, lower grade bands and how to progress. And they said, well, you know, we have a grade one instructor. And you came in right at the perfect time and said, well, that could be part of your problem. You're, um, you're learning to be perfect when you really haven't got the skill set to be perfect yet. That's somewhere down the road, and you're overachieving. And as a result, you're actually going backwards. And then you used your own example, and you made it quite clear. I play, I've played in uh, a couple world championships. I've won them. Uh, and do you think that I play every doubling and, and every other embellishment? There's some that I just can't play. You admitted uh, at the top level how frail our playing is when it comes. You don't do anything to uh, upset the ensemble of the band. Um, and I said, you might want to go back to this instructor, or I, and I, at that time I thought, maybe get a lesser qualified instructor that's not trying to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear, you know? Yeah. You get the idea. <laughs> and I congratulate you because that's a segue into your your new book, you know, no question about it. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I, I would say I would say I definitely play the vast majority of the stuff in there. You know, Ken, I just some people might hear this. I don't want to I don't want to get and end up getting found out or anything. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I don't, you don't want Stuart to drop you, you know. <laughs> right. Exactly. Like, like, you know, uh, yeah. Before you know it, you know, I'll be I'll definitely be in the third rank, you know, for, <laughs> I'm not careful. <clears throat> or yeah, anyway, but I uh, I better stop talking about that right now, but no, I think yeah. I do. I think I do play the vast majority of the stuff, but you know, if there ever is anything, here's one thing that's definitely true is when I'm learning the material, if there's anything I can't currently do or I'm not comfortable doing, it it's definitely out and I get the rest of the stuff going as well as I possibly can. Uh and and from there maybe add the finishing touches. You know, maybe that that burl that's really bugging me or you know, you know, and especially in some of these MSR tunes, maybe there's a whole bunch of E doublings or D doublings that, that are in there that maybe aren't a hundred percent essential. So if it's, yep. if it's affecting my rhythm negatively, making it difficult to core with the group, uh, it's, it's out. And, and then once I can get it again later, maybe it's back in, but, um, I, I support you hundred percent on that. And a great example, uh, E doublings off an F. I have an awful time with them as a lot of players do. I don't define the G grace note, uh, well enough. So quite often I'll just be playing a G grace note in that. And, you know, even as pipe major of the band, I didn't worry about, uh, a missed grace note here or there. The fact was we were all together on it and we had the accents we want. And then I would work on that. And, and I teach in the same way. That's sort of, if you can't do it, let's work on it till you can. Then we put it back into the tune, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, uh, the other thing that, the other thing I found is when you adopt that, when you adopt that philosophy towards playing, it really doesn't take long till you're at the point where you can get it all back in again. You know, uh, so so like if if you are leaving a few things out, uh, you know, it's really not long before it sort of organically comes in. I, I always remember there was like a little C doubling in Tom McAllister. Like in, oh, yeah. in, in yeah, Rary yeah. had that little C doubling in there. Uh, maybe. 
Don't quote me on that. Uh, but I think I think we did. And then, um, but I, I remember I, I certainly did not have that in when I was learning the tune, just because the rhythm was was weird as a result. Uh, but then by the time we by the time competition season rolled around, it had it had been in for a long time. And but I think the big point is that uh, you know you can peel back the layers and you can. Uh, you could peel back the layers and, and have a, you know, I don't know. I think that'll define your success, really, your ability to do that and your, your willingness to simplify and to do things the smart way. Well, that's right. You can't stop or start at the top and work backwards. It does not work under anybody's system. And so you start with fundamentals and basics. And this is one of the things, your book, it was a great read for me. Uh, not only was it a fast read for the amount of material, it was how you presented it. And I think uh, uh, most importantly for me, you presented it always with some personal anecdote that applied to you in your history. And that relates to the vast number of people that'll read the book. They can relate to the issues that you had and the circumstances in your life, perhaps. Uh, going, Getting fit, for example, that right off the bat, I think I mentioned that to you. This was an important thing. And, but it segued into what you needed to blow the instrument, to play the instrument all the way through. So there was threads that brought real life experience into playing. And you did it in a chronological order. I'd like to say the way we were taught so many years ago, where fundamentals became the important step, stepping stone, and then you polished off as you went. You did another thing, you handled blowing the instrument which tutor books just don't even touch, yeah. uh, let me tell you. And that was a great chapter. And then at the end, you started talking about your experiences and uh, what have you. And I thought, uh, so it was very personal. And that's what um, I think people will eat it up. If I had an instruction for people buying a book, don't read the book. Get your practice chanter out and then your pipes and work through the book. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And you'll find. Your, and the other thing, you did another thing, which I buy into completely. I am not a fan of drills of, you know, uh, 25, 30 type of Torlua drills or doubling drills, what have you. I'm a fan of taking a passage out or a phrase out of a tune and making that your drill. Another, and you came through loud and clear. Every one of your examples was something generic from one of the tunes that we play. And I think, and then when you polish that off, it pays huge dividends yeah. immediately on the tune. That's the key. Yeah. We were just talking, we had, uh, so I had my normal class from 8.30 to 9.30, and we were just talking about that, uh, and, uh, and I got a few eyeballs, you know, and we were looking at some exercises, some rhythmic exercises, and, and I was pointing out, like, the most important thing about this exercise is that you, you know, is that you sort of randomly generate it, and, and you're not looking at the same thing every time, because <sighs> at all costs, and this is what I said that made made people uh, kind of get squirmy on me. It's like at all costs, we want to avoid learning the material uh, because learning like you. So, so, and that's what will happen. The, and that's why exercises can be really dangerous is what you do is you end up learning the material, which is the worst possible thing. What we want is not to learn the material. We want to learn the, the skill that's uh, the skill that's going to be required to play that material. And then, you know, so once we've memorized it, all we're doing is regurgitating the material instead of focusing on the skill that we're going to need to be able to do it. So, so constantly mixing it up is a, is a key ingredient because we actually what? don't, we actually, that, and I think that is the problem. That's the problem with that Logan Tudor Strasbe exercise. 
for example. Oh, it, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's uh, it was meant. In fact, I was groomed on that, and I still yeah. play it uh, some fifty, sixty years later. Um, but uh, one of the things that uh, uh, you're you're talking about here is. Uh, an issue that we've all faced as instructors and students. You go into these drills on various rudiments, and they can do them perfectly. I mean, there's not an issue. Then they go back into the tune, and they can't. And all of a sudden, we've now got a couple issues. They don't understand the phrase or passage that they're putting it in, and they don't understand the location. In other words, it's a geographic situation, I often say to them. In other words, you go past the point you had to insert that particular drill, and then you chastise yourself. You should be pro-thinking. In other words, you've got to think about every phrase, every rudiment that you're going to play in some way beforehand before you even play it. Um, and you know yourself, and, and I'm playing Pibrick, for example, you get down, you got to think about every single Kern Lua, exactly how you're going to hit the low Gs and bring everything through on it. Well, it's the same thing in light music and band music. Yeah. Um, so uh, doing drills, generic drills, doesn't uh, guarantee success in the tune because they don't even know where it happens. Uh, and that's an issue that I've had. I, I, I turned around to the student and say, your issue now is mental. You're not thinking enough about where you are in the tune. Uh, and it does work, you know? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. And, you know, I'm sure it's all in moderation. You know, or I'm sure, I'm sure that there are many examples of players who have had a lot of success with the rote, uh, exercises. Um, but, uh, yeah, but for me, situational is better, especially for a hobbyist, you know, for someone who, uh, for someone who has six or seven tunes to learn, you know, well, the best thing we can do is to try to improve our technique in the process of, uh, uh, of learning that tune. But I say that in the book, right? You know, uh, one of the worst things you can do is just pick one tune and, and, uh, pick one tune and play it, uh, and play that tune only. Cause you run into a lot of trouble that way and you don't necessarily get a lot better. So, so yeah, mixing that it up. Came, yeah. That came up in a memorization, uh, uh, workshop I did online for the uh, Ontario Pipers and Pipe Bands Society this past weekend. And the question came up, do you concentrate on learning one new uh, tune at a time? I said, no. I says, listen, I have multiple tunes. I'm, I'm finished my pipe band career. I'm a consummate hobbyist now. I'm passionate about it. So I might have five or six tunes on the go at any given time. In Pedrick, I might probably got three or four tunes on the go and I'm experiencing each one. I might not practice each one every day, but I have multiple tunes, multiple experiences, and it accomplishes a lot more for me. And uh, so that was my answer back to him, you know? Yeah. I sometimes say that to students too, especially as like, a, uh, as, especially when it comes to solo competing, like, should I solo compete? And one of the thought exercises uh, that I ask people to think about is, uh, you know, I think a successful soloist typically has four times the repertoire requirement up their sleeve, uh, the successful ones. Yeah. So like, uh, let's say, uh, so for example, let's take Jack Lee, who's playing at the Glenfiddich and, and it, you know, he has to submit six of everything. Well, you can guarantee, and as we know, Jack, he probably has 20, 30 times the, that, <laughs> but you know, uh, but he has at least four, like he has at least 24, two, four marches that he could play, uh, at a, at, you know, at a world-class standard, I guarantee it. And I'm sure it's way more than that with where Jack is concerned. And I know the same is true of Jim McGilvery as well. Uh, he's another guy that comes to mind. 
uh, when he used to just play on the electronic pipes at the Cayley at Invermark. And uh, he would go for hours, same, you know, two, four marches or f- four, four marches or something like that. And, and, but I think that does go back to grade four. You know, if you want to dabble and, and just have a tune and see how it goes, that would be one thing. But I think if you're going to be successful, you know, if the requirement is one, two, four march, I think that, on, uh, you know, on any given day, you would be able to play one of four uh, two, four marches to that good grade four standard. You know, and that's not because it's something random that I'm saying. It's just because it's the breadth of experience uh, and it's the number of things that you're exposed to and, uh, and that you work on. I think that actually is, is what propels you forward. You know? well, I think it's a, uh, also a question of priorities. Uh, these, especially for the uh, lesser grades, they're so concerned about the competition and not progressing as musicians yeah. that they're going to get one tune and practice it and hoping to get it perfect, which they never will anyway. But can you imagine playing uh, Norman Ora Ewing for four years in a grade four solo event? It would drive you insane. Uh, and I think... Uh, even at the top, um, I, you just reminded me of uh, after our Winter Storm video, I talked to Willie McCollum about his Donald McLeod tune, Urquhart Castle. I'd never heard it before. And I said, where'd you get that? Oh, he says it's in one of the army manuals. Scots guards, may, maybe. I think it was in the Queen's Own or one of them. And uh, I looked it up. It is a fabulous tune. And his answer back, he says, you know, I just might include that in my top six this year. Uh, you know, he's always yeah. thinking about new tunes to add. In other words, that top six rotates in, it rotates out, and so on. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm teaching a few uh, youngsters right now, and they're, uh, they're progressing much better than most of the adults uh, as far as competition is concerned. But their repertoires are, are, are huge. They'll have, mm-hmm. And they're playing fairly heavy tunes. Uh, uh, and I'm, I, I'm getting away from the, the simple two fours and putting them into more complex rhythms and so on. They eat it up, they progress, and their repertoire, there's, each one of them has three or four tunes that they could, could play. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's just, and I agree with you 100%. And this will, uh, the, and I let them also, another thing, Andrew, I let them as students, even at a tender age, try to pick tunes which they like. So I've given them a lot of digital copies of music and say, give me two or three tunes that you want to learn. And boy, when they like a tune, away they go, you know? So, um, so the, the idea that kids learn faster and better than adults, what, what's your take on that? Oh, no, I don't, I'm not going to say better. I would, um, uh, we talked about this in memorization, an interesting thing. Um, I find kids can mimic and they do a great job of copying what you are playing. I, for one, when I started at eight, I watched my instructor's fingers and I followed them to a T. And as they progressed, I started to impress upon them the theory of G grace notes, accenting the beat and so on, the concept of good rhythms all the way through, playing in time. The adults understand more. And when I'm teaching adults, if I can explain the theory and they understand, then chances are they'll have a better uh, record of success going forward. So they understand where I don't find the kids, let me put it this way, I don't find the kids need to understand. I I didn't, uh, and I go back to my own history, I don't think I had a clue uh, until I was in my uh, late teens on really 
what was going on with the music. And then when I went to John Wilson for Peabrick lessons, I started to find out really how the music is glued together in phrases, uh, how rhythms are important, how accents are important, playing in time, all those features. But as a kid, I just... Uh, it was yes, sir. Yes, sir. Two bags full, sir. As far as my teacher was concerned, you know, yeah. I don't know if that makes sense to you or resonates with you, but uh, there's a different learning aptitude. But I, I but they do uh, come on a lot faster. The good ones, let me tell you. But listen, I've had some that weren't and they just didn't see it for one reason or another, you know, or didn't get excited about it or something. Well, that, that, that's the case. I think the instructor can do an awful lot as far as the uh, motivation and an excitement. Uh, the pandemic uh, played havoc uh, with a couple of them. And one of my junior students who's got real good progress, I, have, uh, I started during the early stages of the pandemic uh, coming online with them twice a week. I wasn't going to let anything escape uh, by going every second week or once, even once a week. So you come on, say, a Tuesday and a Friday for a lesson. Uh, I enjoyed it, but it, it kept him uh, in the game, you know? Yeah. You know, I, I think I think when you're a young person, too, I think you're maybe, I don't know, I think you're maybe, you, you know, you're already in the zone, the learning zone when you're young. You know, you're already, you know, you're already in the midst of learning so many important things that I think you yeah. make those connections really easily, too. Like, like, you know, and you're sort of, your brain is receptive to, like, the brand new, and I think that definitely helps. You know, you're allowed, you're allowed to, you know, like you say, mimicry, it's, you don't just do that in piping. I think you do that when you're learning how to, you know, behave as a, as a human or something like that too. So you're used to it. Uh, oh yeah. I, w I wanted to be Barry Bonds, you know, so I, I, I swung the bat just like him. <laughs> I didn't have eye, eye to arm coordination. That's the only problem, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for me, that's maybe, for me, I had one year I could really hit the ball and then I just could never... I, I didn't quite have it after that. And then I, I feel like I lost interest and I also maybe became a little bit afraid to step up there and try to hit it, you know? Uh, so, so yeah, my baseball career was kind of short. <laughs> no uh, pro contacts. Uh, that's where though, uh, from the piping perspective, your early um, tutors, instructors are so fundamentally important. And I will never forget the first five years with my uh, primary instructor he made sure I did everything correctly. He didn't let anything go by him. And that was extremely important. Uh, and then going to uh, John Wilson after that, that was uh, just the polishing school, finishing school, so to speak, you know, uh, and, and led to a career in piping. But early on, uh, that uh, primary instruction is so important. And uh, even uh, Callum Beaumont, for example, just uh, composed a tune for his instructor, Bert Smith. And even at this stage, Bert is, is past now, but Colin plays real reverence to that early instruction. Him yeah. and his brother James were good players because of those first few years, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I don't know, James, if you're out there, still think you're kind of overrated, buddy. No, no. Uh, I'm Ask still for bitter. some financial advice. Ask for some financial advice, okay? Well, exactly. I think I think he's probably he's probably good in that department. But uh, no, no, yeah, I'm yeah. still bitter. I'm still bitter. I I won the silver medal. Do you know this? I won the silver medal in uh, what what year was it? Probably like 2005 or something. But it turns out on the same day, James played better and beat me. So. So I was third. Well, I was third instead. Yeah. Well, listen. Every pipe band in the world uh, has a story like that. 1997, Vic Police. Yeah. They that was their contest. 
but they got it in 98. So, right. uh, you know, and with not a performance quite up to the same standard, as a matter of fact. Uh, so, you know, we've all uh, all heard those uh, stories. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was going to say, I mixed up story and stories. We've heard those stories many yeah. times over, oh, you yeah. know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so you mentioned like your early piping development. So, who were your uh, who were your main teachers early on? Well, that, uh, that, that, it's uh, got an Edinburgh connection. You're familiar with uh, Willie Sinclair and Hugh McPherson. Yes. Uh, uh, Hugh McPherson made uh, had the business at 17 West Maitland Street. He, Hugh McPherson lived in St. Catharines, Ontario. He was born and raised in Port Dover, Ontario, with his brother Richard or Dick. Uh, and he started this import business and decided to move the head office to Edinburgh, where he became a magistrate. But in the early 50s, he hired Willie Sinkler. As, and so I was brought up and taught by his brother, Dick McPherson. I started at age eight, and I started at, an, in the shop that Hugh McPherson had in St. Catharines at 231 Lake Street. I uh, started in a class of 13, and... Uh, Unfortunately, I'm the only survivor still playing. Hmm. I think the others are all still alive, mind you, but they, they didn't uh, come through the system. Um, and I stayed with Dick, um, and that was 1955 that I started. And we we're in the St. Catharines Pipe Band, which later in 57 became the infant uh, or infancy of the Clan McFarland Pipe Band. But I didn't go with the clan at the time. I stayed with my teacher. Um, loyalty is one thing that I... Uh, I do have, I'll tell you that. And uh, I stayed with him until 1962. That was the time that, that was seven years of instruction. Then I went to John Wilson in Toronto. Um, and I took lessons uh, from John, uh, Peterick and Light Music. And I stayed um, either in a, a direct communication or a mentorship with John until he passed away in 78. Uh, wow. Uh, and so... Uh, uh, and I still have letters from him, so I got my fundamental Pedrick tuition there. I was competing solos at the time, but I had joined the Clan McFarlane in 62. We came to grade one, and I, uh, I was playing solos all through that period and getting prizes here and there. Um, not at the standard of our great players, but, you know, uh, kept my name in the game. And in 71, 72, I took over the Clan McFarlane grade one band. Uh, and that ended. I just couldn't uh, compete uh, at the, the or improve on the solo level because I had so many things with the band uh, on my plate to get organized. Because we had just sat out the year before, uh, and we had a we're getting a brand new band going, which was very successful in the seventies. But my solo career ended, but my teaching career began. You know what I mean? Got it. So. Uh, so, you know, life, uh, piping life uh, can go in stages and all for a particular reason. And the best people in the world can combine fabulous uh, levels of solo playing with bands. For example, Bill Livingston's a, a great example, eh? Bobby Hardy was a, a fabulous. How about Jack Lee? Oh, man, you know, I, I can name, you can name dozens of people like this. Stuart Lee. Oops. Ken, we lost, your audio. we lost your audio there. Your audio just turned off on us. You'll hear me now. Yes, I hear you now. Do you want to just go with this? What? Okay, this is good enough. We're, we're going to fix this up. Uh, I'm going to apply for a, a huge government grant to buy me a big fancy microphone. How does that sound? Uh, that sounds that sounds good. I mean, uh, you know, 
There's probably still, there'll be a, some whole new problem once, once you get that going. But, <laughs> yeah. I, um, I'm on the webcam now. Okay. So what was the scene like? So, so, uh, you started in 55 and you said you played solos all the way up to the early seventies. So what was, what did the scene look like then? Was it, was oh. it, uh, was it, how did it compare to today? Ah, okay. Um, the personalities, uh, I would say the personalities at the, uh, at the top were much the same. Um, I was, I was certainly, uh, in Ontario and along the Eastern seaboard, you had Roddy McDonald, for example, that uh, was, uh, you, you call Roddy, he played up in Inver Gordon. Um, you had, uh, uh, oh, George Bell had the Parlin band, um, uh, up our way, Ray McKay, who you're familiar with. Yeah. Uh, Chris Anderson, who had the Cabaret City of Toronto, the first, the the uh, the first uh, North American band to place at the World's Championships in 1966. Wow. Um, and they were second in piping to Muirheads, and the uh, which was quite something. Um, those two, Ray and Chris, were uh, taught by John Wilson. Okay. Um, then we had Archie Cairns, senior pipe major in the British Army, who was uh, uh, closely allied with Captain John McClellan. Uh, wow. So I'm giving you an idea of some of the personalities, and there was many others. There were some in the U.S., uh, a fellow by the name of Benny Manson that came out of the Wooster area. Uh, this is all back in the 60s. These, uh, these were good players. Uh, and we, had, uh, we didn't have uh, graded pipers. We didn't have the amateurs that you have today. Back in those days, it was age groups, much like uh, in Scotland. So we have 18 and under and 16 and under. And uh, and you earned uh, your way up through the ranks. And uh, after 18 and under, you basically had to go pro if you were going to continue to compete. Uh, the, the level of instruction, uh, I would say, was solid, but it wasn't anywhere near where we're at today. I think teaching methods and understanding of how what we do with the music has improved with the influx of a lot of new players and some good teachers. So uh, the numbers of top players right now is a lot, uh, lot higher. Um, in the 70s, I was going to Scotland, uh, and I'd say I'd go to Oban or Inverness, and uh, uh, the numbers of players in the gold medal might be 35, you know, they, uh, and the contest would start uh, 8 o'clock in the morning, and the results might not come out till 11 o'clock at night. It was just a huge event. So there were uh, uh, numbers in Scotland sprinkled with a few people from North America, but very few. Now uh, it's wide open, and uh, we've got many people that could pop these prizes and look at the growth in uh the usa uh i i, I derek midgley and ben mcclamrock to name a few mm -hmm. mike kuzak's already won both medals you get the idea that um they're competing at the highest level in solos so and a lot of that's attributed to online teaching by the way uh or going to scotland for a certain length of time back in my day ed nye was one of the people that went over to spend a year with john mcfadden who was one a major influence here and the summer schools had started so that's where jim mcgillivray gets his background as well from from ed and from john um John had an influence on Bill Livingston uh, as well. And um, so, and I think, uh, so I would say the two eras are comparable, but there's much more of it right now. And of course, music has developed so much 
You know, when back in the 60s, we didn't have photocopying. We didn't have all the books you've got now. We didn't have the creative juices going. And I talked to people. We had Gestetner and we had uh, <laughs> one of the other things. You know, uh, I've even got a book here that a guy created in a blueprint machine. So it's blue with white yeah. notes on it. That That's was big, right? Some- yeah, a lot of the music. Oh, yeah. A lot of the music I learned on was on the same sort of. Uh, it was like my dad's old copies of music. Yeah, like that bluish waxy paper, yeah. right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, and I and I'm I was just looking at the old clan music uh, last week, and I had to write all the clan music out by hand, which I did in the late '60s with my pipe sergeant Noel Slagle. And in so doing, I learned how to write music and understand more about phrasing and what have you. But we had to write it all out by hand. That was that was a labor of love. And uh, I, you know, it was uh, you kept a, a pencil going uh, and then a, a jar of whiteout, and that's how you corrected your mistakes. That's you know, how you did it. Well, go figure. You know, uh, you know, there must be something to it because the drummers are still doing that. Oh, well, isn't that the truth? Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> it's uh you'd be surprised we had a whole core uh back in the late 60s um john kirkwood senior was the lead drummer he wrote music but no one else wrote wrote music or read music and so they would pr- they all lived in the same district in the town and they would practice almost every night for an hour or so together so that they could learn it wrote yeah and that's how and that went on and a lot of the clan scores weren't written until the early 1980s go figure that you know yeah um yeah, I think, um, but you know, I think um, all branches of music are getting a, a little bit better there now. At least uh, I hope so, you know. So in I, the, sorry, sorry to cut you off there, Ken. Didn't mean to. No, no problem. I was uh, segueing to another question. So like, uh, so a lot of this, these Scottish players immigrated to Canada in the, after the World War II, presumably, right? Like, is that, right. so like, how does that work? Why did they do, why did they move? Um, we're a good example of that. Um, uh, number one, jobs. The war recovery in the UK uh, was severe after 1946-47. They're still cleaning up. Uh, and the hope for a better life. And if you happen to have been a piper or a drummer, there was opportunities. Um, the first one that came to mind was out in Powell River, BC. Powell River has uh, a lumber company. Okay, and that was uh, a perfect place for people to go, like Jordy Pride, who played yeah. with Edinburgh Police, and a bunch of other people, and they formed a real uh, uh, of of the era a good standard pipe band. In our particular case, um, 1953, I I mentioned my association with Hugh McPherson in in Scotland. Yes. Well, he became a magistrate in Edinburgh and was really associated with the and he was also a past president of the rspba it wasn't the royal scottish it was just the scottish pipe band association at the time and john kirkwood had led the shots drum corps to the world's championship at air in 52 and at that particular point hugh mcpherson set up a possibility of him coming to the saint catherine's pipe band to take over the drum section and bring the whole shots core with them. Now, how does that work? We ha- we are General Motors town, and we have people in General Motors that can assist in getting them jobs. 
And every one of the players that came across got uh, jobs either in General Motors or in Thompson Products, which was an a, a automobile supply company. We had jobs waiting for them. Wooster, which you're familiar with, yeah. much the same. They could offer jobs. And these jobs were certainly higher paying. Uh, and this situation existed for me uh, right up to 1981. I'm going to give you a, a little bit of history here. In 1981, Johnny Kirkwood Jr. had left, uh, getting ready to leave for, uh, he had already been over to play with Muirheads, okay? And he'd come back to Canada. And we needed a drum corps that was going to be a world class. We did have a pipe section that was, you know, bordering on it. And so we negotiated after Muirheads uh, went under with Rab Turner, Tony Burns, and Johnny Kirkwood. The, in other words, the Muirheads Drum Corps. And at that time, our band president was in the personnel department of General Motors. And we secured jobs for these people in General Motors. For a variety of reasons, it never went through, but we uh, were able to provide that uh, uh, incentive for them to come. So this went on through the 70s. A lot of players came over. Um, and and the, and it's an economic thing as wanting something better for your family immediately after the war. That's how John Wilson, uh, my teacher, came across. Uh, he, he emigrated in 49, uh, four years after the war ended. He'd been a prisoner of war. Uh, uh, prior to that, you know? Interesting. Yeah. So, so it's just kind of like, uh, so it's a, a bit of a network then between pipers kind of like, you know, Hey, if, if, if you are interested in, uh, coming over, you know, we want to help you out because, you know, we've got a pipe band that needs, you know, X, Y, Z. And, and, and so, uh, okay. That, that makes sense to me. Yeah. We got two pipers out of the 277 Argyles. They won the world's championship with Johnny Weatherston in 62 we got Alec Price and uh, Roy Blevins, uh, and they came over in the mid '60s. Okay, yeah. yeah. So what's that uh, like then? So so you succeed in bringing people over these top players, and then and then how does that work? Uh, I'm I'm going in the like the ego direction. Like, was it difficult to manage some of these people now that they've come over and they they know how it is? And then you know, was there any clashing, or what? Or was that minimal at that time? No, I, I think that's a question of personality as much as anything else. Uh, if you truly love the instrument, uh, you can go anywhere uh, and play. And you, if they're true bandsmen, they know their uh, responsibilities to the band. I, we, uh, had, we had lots of advice, but no ego issues. And I, I, you had the reverse uh, many years later in the early uh, 2000s when Ian Donaldson and Paul DeBoth went and John Wallace went over to play with Shots. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And they all had stellar careers in pipe bands, but they walk in uh, humbly, shall we say, and l wishing to learn. And I found these people the same thing. They had to learn our system and they could bring uh, evidence of what they'd come from. So they were helpful more than anything else. Certainly no egos, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. I, I wasn't sure if there would be, you know, uh, I guess there probably wasn't really any doubt that the bands in Ontario were were very good, though. That that probably that probably helps. Well, we'd already uh, placed in the top ten at the Worlds in '66. Yeah. Uh, with 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 one of these players, uh, and that uh, opened it up for another player to come in '67. Uh, so the bands had established, and uh, uh, I think in the mid '60s, the Ontario bands were beginning to establish themselves uh, on the world stage at the Grade One level. Uh, and that, and uh, which is 
interesting uh, in the fact that it took another. We went across uh, to the major events um, in uh, in the seventies, and but it did take finally SFU and the '78 uh, Frasers to to get to the pinnacle of North American performance over there, and so the the road was paved with a lot of hard work prior to them. You know, mm. that's what and, I was gonna. Uh, I was going to ask you that next. So, like, how do you go from having some excellent bands in the '70s, uh, and then how? Like, can you paint a picture of how it went from there to finally winning? You know, what 15 years later, like the '70s Frasers, and then, yeah. of course, SFU were very good in the '80s as well. And and but it took them until '95 to finally win it. But but what does that look like? You know, how does that? How how do we go from A to B? Yeah. Uh, Influx of good players. There's no question about it. And I can speak uh, here uh, quite candidly about the 78 Frasers, um, a real good pipe section um, in the early, or when the band got going. They were came from the General Motors pipe band, which was a, a grade one band, but not in the winning class, you know, uh, very much. But then um, they decided to uh, bring a few players in. Um, Ian Donaldson, who became their pipe sergeant, for example, came from our our feeder group here in at the Clan McFarlane, the Niagara and District Pipe Band. Jake Watson, who you're familiar with, mm -hmm. came from the same feeder system. Jake Jake played for me for a number of years, um, and um, so then they got a bunch of other good players. Barry Ewan came up. John Walsh emigrated. Uh, but they all they had a firm foundation with Mike Gray and and Bruce Gandy and Bill Livingston, uh, so th they were good players and they attracted other good players. And so the from that uh, infancy of General Motors pipe band, which actually part of that came from the city of Toronto, uh, they the influx of good players uh, made a huge difference. And then uh, Reed Maxwell in the early eighties emigrated mm -hmm. from Belingri School in Dysart. It's probably, a, just, it's like, a, you know, probably a very significant moment just in general for uh, uh, North American oh, pipe bands. Uh, absolutely. The track record uh, can't be, can't be slid under the door type of thing. It's there in public domain. Uh, and Reed, uh, um, no question about it, uh, was, bringing a new dimension to ensemble in particular. And I mean, I, I, and then, then there's a couple, a uh, few guys from your uh, area, I say New Jersey and what have you, Jerry Quigg right. had emigrated to Canada. He came up with a few others, Ian McMahon, and I believe in a John McNaughton, but Jerry was the mainstay of some of the musical creation. I remember going to parties at Jerry's house and they put on groups like Fairport Convention Oh man, this was music that was, it was new. It was fresh for us. And from this spawned an awful lot of ideas. And so the music started to uh, germinate within the 78th. And by 85, 86, uh, um, they were really coming up as the premier band in Ontario. The Clan McFarlane, which I had, we weren't getting the new players. And so we were, st we're just getting older, that's all. And the music was, now when you get this fresh music coming in, it made our music uh, old in comparison, you know? 
Got it. And so, uh, and that that took them right through to the Bellamina concert, of course, and then the world's the same year. Uh, and that so that that was part of the, the road being paved. Mind you, they they were in the prize list almost every year uh, up until the early two uh, thousands. Uh, but the band never reached that same height. And I think part of what got them to the worlds in 87 was the brilliant arrangements of their music. Their sound wasn't like Strathclyde Police, and it was more a, a, a coloristic sound, if you get me. But their music was outstanding, and it, it won, won the judges over and won the people's hearts over, because we still think of Ballymena today as being one of those monumental times in Taipan history. Uh, and then, and all through this time, and you were you experienced it. SFU was refining uh, with some imported players, but an awful lot of homegrown players. They got a great system there, uh, and they had the benefits of people going to school at SFU. So, um, uh, Derek, for example, you were an example, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, depending on your life uh, from there on in, Derek's still there. As a matter of fact, this is huge. They had Ian uh, McDonald coming in, and they had so many others. And then in later years, uh, uh, the Smiths came in, and they had Davey Hicks. And, you know, uh, all these people uh, merged together with outstanding leadership. Yeah. And I, I, I'm sure you could admit it right now. It wasn't easy to play for Jack. You oh, know? I don't know. It wasn't that. He's a big softie. He's a big softie. <laughs> I, 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 listen, I've watched these. I've watched these people from afar or up close for years. I love his driving force. And yeah. even the SFU went through uh, monumental changes when, uh, when the Great Two Band won the worlds and that forced the separation, more or less, with the Hilders and what have you. Yeah. And Triumph Street was reborn. I was brought up in an uh, era where uh, we had City of Victoria, we had the Triumph Street Pipe Band, all prior to, I think Port Moody was going then, and uh, Terry had uh, CPR, you know, that's in the 70s. So, uh, but, so you see what, there's an evolution of these bands, and yeah. I'm telling you, it's still going on, no question about it. As far as North America is concerned, SFU is still a, a, a banner carrier and oh, a constant sure. prize, you know. Yeah, it, um, you know, it's, you, it's weird. It's a different time now, isn't it? And, and you've, you have to, you have like, you know, SFU hasn't won the worlds now in a few years, but you have to still, uh, look at that, uh, in, in awe really, you know, because we're in a different time now where, uh, you know, just the, it's like a parachuting thing. And I, you know, I'm now like, a, I'm now a part of it, you know, where, where, um, you know, I had the opportunity to play with Stuart in Scotland and, you know, you kind of make arrangements and obviously Stuart and I come from a similar background and I saw, so I know kind of what he's looking for. And so, you know, uh, I've played for four years with Inverary now, but I've probably only spent what, 20 days with the band or something uh, sure. across but, that time. But this is, is the time. So uh, you talk about parachuting 1998, Vic police won the world's championship 1999, the police, uh, uh, so we say pulled their travel off the table and and Ian Lyons and Robert Crozier came to the 78th yes that's from right. Vic police I remember that and oh and it was a monumental uh, influx of good players and Robert Crozier uh, needless to say was maybe one of the finest uh, tone people I've ever seen in setting chanters he gets those intervals right so that I'd say um, at that but that but that's not uh, that's not the beginning. 
in the 70s, I can give you probably 10 players from here that went over to play with Muirheads. Bob Hardy had a, uh, a, a liking for some of the North American players. Uh, Hal Senek, uh, Kelly Todd, John Elliott that had Toronto and District, right. Michael McDonald of Michael McDonald's Jig, all went over to play for Muirheads. Scott McCauley, Johnny Kirkwood. Uh, and so that was back then. But you couldn't get a flight uh, easily over and back in a weekend type of thing. So there you went and you might have stayed for six months or you yeah. might have stayed for a year yeah. uh, <laughs> until you got either soaked with rain or freezing cold from the drizzle and you, you came home, you know. Yeah. Uh, but they, th th that's how they did it back there. Ed and I went over for a full year, taught school, and studied under uh, uh, John McFadden. And uh, John Goodnow from Detroit, the St. Andrews Band, was over there as well. So, um, and people in the solos like Bill Livingston, they'd go over and spend half the summer touring around the country, going to all the minor events, building up um, this uh, stash of prizes, uh, uh, getting their name known, eventually popping the prize uh, at the top of the list. Yeah. So it's it's been a uh, but prior to 1966, there wasn't much of that going on. Let me tell you. So uh, you can say that the history of solos and pipe bands. Although uh, back in the 50s, Billy Gilmore, a senior pipe major in the Canadian Air Force, or Army, rather, the RCRs, did win Piper of the Day at um, uh, in the major contests at Cowell, okay? Um, and so that was some accomplishment. But uh, it's been a 50-year, 60-year uh, progress, and it's, it's evolutionary. Where it's going from here, I don't know, though. Uh, we look at SFU to keep that banner going for us, you know? Yeah, well, I think that was my original thought process was just like, you know, that even during these times where, I, I mean, we certainly struggle with it in the U.S. where um, where most of the great players uh, kind of, how do I put this in a way that doesn't get me in trouble? Like most of the <laughs> most of the great players here, the, you know, uh, they let's just say they realize there's a lot more fun and a lot more musical challenge to be had elsewhere. Uh, and so they vacate the area, you know, as opposed to definitively having like, you know, your group of guys that form like a very good band. You know, in the 90s, we had that. In the 90s, there was Oren Moore and there was Tullacard and, uh, of course, Ulster and like uh, Schenectady, obviously, like some of these. And they weren't necessarily grade one bands, but they were good bands. And everybody kind of had their their team. But it's not really so much like that anymore. Maybe maybe some of the bands are kind of getting it back, but you have to sort of, you know, SFU, did they maybe foresee that, that type of future or I'm not sure, but, but they set up, you know, at, at a specific point, I guess it would have been what 93 or something. They, they really started to officially work on that feeder system. And now, now it really kind of sustains the band, you know? Uh, and, and like yeah. you said, I mean, there's always going to be great players that go there but but they have like the the homegrown players that that really make up the core of the band, which uh, which is really just incredible. Especially, and one one of the things I love about the RMM organization is it's not it's not like funded heavily by anything in particular. It's it's really just a community group that that works together to make it happen. Yeah, which I think is pretty cool. You know, I think what you're talking about is a sign of progress and. Um, probably a sign of good instruction. You and Eric are over, for example, at Inverary. Um, you would play, uh, per perhaps if there was a band playing 
at the same standard here, you would probably play with them. Um, I'm thinking of Dunedin right now. Paul DeBoth comes down from Florida. Uh, they've got a, uh, a couple. Uh, Mike come, has, has come to the States from the shots and what have you. Eric McNeil is down there. Mm -hmm. And so um, Eric could have been back in the Albany area uh, working with Marine or something like that on a, uh, or building a band up. But there's, uh, there's career opportunities, but there's also playing opportunities. And so I would come right back at you. Why did you go to Inverary? Um, and you probably went because, and I'll answer the question, uh, uh, you wanted to play at a higher standard. The opportunity was there. You could manage it with family and career. And at the same time, there was nothing available locally or within the country that provided you with exactly what you wanted. Yeah. Um, so circumstances. So th this is evolution. And, and why did that happen? Because you got to the standard in your own playing that you could do this. If you were a lesser player, it would have been off your plate. But right. so this and so you are a product of this evolution of good players, as is Eric. OK, as is uh, as um, uh, Eric McNeil. And Eric course, Lett, I mean, yeah. I mean, both of them, eh? Does yeah. that make sense? It does make sense, you know, and, and I think for me, uh, you know, I think there's a, you know, I think there's a lot of things. One of the things that appealed to me the most about playing with Inverary was, you know, uh, that I would not be in a teaching role and that I could focus on my own playing. You know, one of that that's one of the things that really appealed to me after uh, probably, I don't know if it was full 10 years, but a long time of, like you said, Ken, you know, like you're in that teaching role. So when, when, when I did the Oren Moore thing, you know, uh, it's just teaching. And, and I think my personal playing mm -hmm. suffered quite a bit in the process of just teaching. And then of course, Oren Moore kind of fell apart and, uh, and then we played with Stuart Highlanders and then, uh, and it was all teaching and is very difficult. And when it became clear that Stuart Highlanders wasn't really going to, uh, wasn't really going to continue in the way that, uh, that I was hoping that it would, you know, um, then I started to think about, you know, okay, so what, what's something that would challenge me individually as a musician that would move me away a little bit from teaching so that I can just kind of enjoy playing again. Cause after that long stint, you know, uh, you definitely kind of feel, you can feel burned out, uh, after a, a long stint of just, you know, trying, you know, trying to make a grade one band, uh, and not, not necessarily being ultra successful at that. Yeah, I think I kind of felt yeah. burned out and I was looking forward to something new. Yeah. Well, oh, that's right. And, uh, you know, it's like digging a ditch and it never gets deeper, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you just, you know, or it's a black hole. You don't know how far you have to go down. And yeah. I, I think um, that's quite true. And I think it's a credit to the, uh, the progress and evolution that piping has had around the world. Uh, you got guys uh, like Rochi used to come up from Australia from Brisbane to play within Verary as well. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not it's not limited just to uh, North America. Um, and I think um, as we, long as we continue to progress, uh, there's always going to be musicians that rise above the mainstream of what we have back home. And mm -hmm. they're you're looking for and as a musician, you're looking for creativity. You're looking for new ways of presenting your music. You're looking for challenges. And so you go into Inverary as a guppy in a shark tank and <laughs> you, you now are looking after yourself and not the uh, <laughs> if you follow what i'm saying you know oh totally this is, 
You, I, you've now taken a new role in life, huh? I have a funny story along those lines where um, uh, <laughs> we're, we're at the Worlds of 2016 and I'm playing next to Jock Elliott, you know, G1 Reads. Uh, I know him, yeah. Uh, I'm, playing, I'm playing next to him and on my other side is Greg Canning, uh, another great piper. And uh, anyway, so we're, uh, we're about to go on and that one, I was like the last guy. I didn't get my drones uh, done by the guy. So, so I fired up. We're, the band's forming up. We're going on. I fire up and I play a little bit of Boba Fett and, and and Jock, like he runs over to me and he's like, Andrew, we don't play D throws like that, man. You gotta, you gotta play the, <laughs> I forget what it was like. No, the low G low G on that D throw is way too big, man. You got to fix that D throw. And we're literally about to go on the field and I'm like, Oh Jesus. So, uh, so I don't think I changed anything, but that's a classic example where, uh, yeah, he, he was probably right. I, I probably wasn't quite, Probably wasn't quite there with the D throw. But, oh yeah, uh, you know what? You just uh, touched on the uh, what's all good about piping because one story uh, spawns another. So I have to inter uh, come in right now and tell you my favorite story, whether it be true or not. Uh, good stories are half lies anyway, so don't worry about it. That's right. Uh, but this is Vic Police. The year they won the Worlds in 1998 and has to do with Robert Crozier. So he's a hero in my books. Uh, and so I, I perpetuate this story. They were getting ready to go to the line and he turns around to the guy right beside him and says, I got a fiver. I bet you don't get your pipes up. <laughs> so he did that to that somebody else? No, one of his own guys, the guy who was playing right beside him. <laughs> Got a fiber, you don't get your pipes up. This is how confident they were, eh? Yeah. I've told that story, and I don't know where I got it. And it might be total fabrication, but it's still a good story, you know? Yeah. That, that, and then, uh, two, so my first ever grade one Worlds was in 2002. And I think it was 2002. And we come off the field, and uh, uh, I was chatting with Andrew Bonar, and... Um, and, and I was like, I was like, what did you think? You know, I was, I, I was, I'd never done this before. Like, what'd you think? Was it a good performance? And Boney was like, ah, yeah, I think it was pretty good. But you know, I think I, I think I played, I think I played a D instead of a C on every single part of uh, the clan McRae society. And, uh, <laughs> and I was like, and you know how Boney was like that. He, he would tell, yeah, yeah, yeah. he would tell a, uh, you know, he would tell a story like that and um, you couldn't tell if he was kidding or not. And, and he had no. me going, uh, he had me going all day that he had just played like 16 wrong notes in the tune. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I don't know if, I don't know if it was, I still don't know if it was true or not, but, uh, but yeah, just that story reminds me of Boney cause he, he would do stuff like that. He would, he would kind of horse around. And, yep. And, and that's it. And that's, I think that, um, really attest to the great, the social aspects of the instrument, perhaps more than any other instrument that I know. Yeah. Um, you don't get that so much in a symphony orchestra. The, the strings and the, the horns don't necessarily communicate sometimes. And when practice is over, they go home. There's dead. And uh, pipers uh, can be less serious about the music if you've got a character in the band like that. And I think musicians thrive um, if they're less serious about what they're trying to do, especially when I see these younger competing pipers, they're so hell bent on, on competing. Uh, and they're also so bent on, uh, embellishment, uh, issues. How many times in your teaching, somebody misses an E doubling. So they stop playing. Ugh. They look, 
yeah, you know, it's it, it's a broken record, you know. Um, and uh, their their attitudes, if you can get them around, to, you know, just play good music, whether it has everything in it or not, um, that's the encouragement factor. And getting back to your book, I found the book totally enchanting from that point of view. Uh, you made it quite clear that no matter how frustrated or downtrodden you seem to be, there's always something about the positive aspects that you can bring out. And you have indicated yourself uh, by your own life examples that that's the case. And uh, I got people that uh, they don't play well in a contest and they uh, their life centers around getting a prize. Oh, man, uh, they're going to have a lot of disappointment in life if that's what the situation yeah. is, you know. Yeah. yeah. And just uh, that that's uh, just bringing that back to Jack and Terry Lee. And, uh, you know, uh, there's so much that way as well. You know, if you look at and, and um, just if you look at uh, SFU from the outside, you might be tempted to think that they're, you know, really dialed into to what you were saying, which is just like, you know, competing and trying to get everything perfect. And certainly, uh, certainly when I was in the band, you know, we practiced so much. So the band plays so much during the summertime, but it's really like, you know, Jack and Terry are really actually not about that at all. Um, and it maybe takes some time to like learn what's really going on, but what's really going on is you're just really enjoying playing and you're enjoying the hard work aspect. Uh, and then the, the results are a natural byproduct of that. Um, and, ah. and it doesn't actually matter. It doesn't actually matter that much. Like going back to Jack Lee being a big softy, you know, he's very intense. He wants to play the best he possibly can, but I still remember getting our asses kicked at pit lockery that year that, that I'll never forget that. So we, I forget what year it was, 2006, maybe we tried yep. to go over early cause we hadn't done That's as right. we hadn't done as well as we wanted in 2005. So we tried to go over that early. Was what that was that was with the nail channers too, wasn't it? Yeah, we we were trying some different uh, some different gear and stuff. Uh, we we tried to go over early, and um, I, I still remember I was I was hanging out with Bernard Buhadana uh, during the yeah yeah yeah, and, and just I just remember first place not us, second place not us, third place not us, etc. We were we ended up being sixth place, which you know uh, the point of that trip was to try to win. Sixth place was like. Well, a shocker. And, you know, I, I, I don't know how old I would have been, maybe 20 years old or something. But what I remember most from that trip is I ended up going out to dinner with Jack and Terry and uh, Yori Chisholm was there. And I just remember so clearly Jack and Terry not being upset about the result at all. It was like, uh, and I don't think they, I think they were just kind of talking about some, you know, some things that were going on at home in BC, like just sort of normal stuff. And, they try to enjoy their dinner and uh, and they were like totally relaxed about, you know, what to me seemed like the end of the world. Like I was sitting, I was thinking in my head, like, guys, like, why aren't you freaking out about this? And um, it's just because and it starts to click in over time. It's like the result is cool and it's going to come. And I think at that point, Jack and Terry are super confident that the results would come, you know, over time. Uh, and sure enough, you know, you get home and uh, we switched away from the Ganaway bags. We were back on sheep. We switched back to the Sinclair Channers. And, you know, just certain decisions were made to get the band back online, you know, to be competitive again. Yeah. But it's not like a big thing. It's not like you well, said, it's maybe not, it doesn't define you how you do in, in the and, competition. And maybe with your maybe with your experience, that's where you are now. 
uh, and you can appreciate it. And that's also why Jack and Terry and many others in the band are still with us, the longevity of the band, because uh, mm -hmm. burnout isn't, uh, isn't on the table uh, for all these re reasons. Uh, they won't get ulcers over not getting a prize. So their life does not depend on uh, you know, winning that prize. Jack is a perfect example. I go over to the Glenfiddich when I can. About four years ago, he broke down in the march. Uh, uh, I forget the forget the tune he was playing. I, I got it at the tip of my tongue. That's not important. But he comes back the following year and wins the event. Right. And <clears throat> now the breakdown on the biggest stage uh, of uh, piping world, and then come back. Uh, and I had breakfast with him the next morning, and. He, he was right on to the next event. He was going to spend a few days practicing at a friend's house and then head down to London for the Braddock. But this is the attitude. And that's why these people are still in the game today. And so they play with passion, but results don't control that passion at all. So right. uh, it's huge. Uh, uh, I've seen people quit because they didn't reach the pinnacle in the prize list that they wanted. Uh, uh, what a way. In other words, your whole life, uh, your happiness is dependent on getting a first, second, or third. That's uh, you yeah. know, and I I think uh, I, that's another thing your book brings out. Uh, happiness can be at any level whatsoever. Happiness equals enjoyment, and uh, and I don't care whether you only play Green Hills and Scott and the Bray the rest of your life. If you're having a good time at that, then that's happiness. You've defined your own piping environment, uh, and I think that's important. You know, <clears throat> somewhere along the way, it can get lost. So. Uh, like, oh, yeah. so when you start there, like when you first start playing, there's no question that piping is bringing positive value to your life, which is sort of the reason you do it. And I think it's, it's easy to understand at the beginning, but then something happens in there where, you know, suddenly, and maybe it is that you hit the wall and you can't get better and you can't figure out why or, or, and then a lot of us, like a lot of the people I hung out with over the years got caught up in the competition web and, uh, you know, and weren't able to and weren't able to continue to enjoy it. You know, that's, that's a tricky thing. Well, you know, and I think, I think that's why, and I don't want to speak for him, but I think that's why Jim McGillivray stopped playing uh, at the high level solos. You know, it's just, it started like the, uh, the fun factor sort of wore off for him. And, and so he probably wisely decided not to do it anymore. Um, it's certainly something I, I struggled well, with. Uh, solo. And he has, yeah. Go ahead, Ken. Yeah, I think yeah, you can find alternate alternate ways of be, uh, enjoying what you're doing, and it might not necessarily be in the competition. I do think this thriving on competition is a. Uh, I find it being an awful North American thing. We foster it in our sports. Uh, records are meant to be broken. Uh, who's the best? Uh, who's the player of the game? Who's the MVP? You get this idea, and I think. Uh, it, I don't, maybe it's uh, all over the world, but um, I find it really prevalent here. Uh, uh, the best hockey player of all time. You get the idea, you know? And, yeah. Uh, and uh, competition does, uh, you know, bring that element into it. And uh, so you don't have to be the best. Uh, you know, you just have to be one that satisfies yourself. And so my, uh, my interpretation of that is that, and it's, great i'm not competing anymore uh i can sit back and i i'm playing music which i just love and it's i'm playing a lot of it and it's new uh and 
in fact, in some of my teaching, I'm learning the tunes maybe a month or two ahead of time so I can teach them down the road. Right. So there's always a motivation that way, and it's always in the education somewhere along the line. So that's my happiness. I'm in my happy zone, right. I, you know, many years ahead, you know. And so, um, but I'm not in the competitive zone, and I try to take this competitive edge away from some of my players. Uh, although the pandemic with all these online events has... Uh, uh, has made it possible for people to sustain a standard, perhaps, but uh, it's still not. If they're only playing one or two tunes to uh, record and compete, they're not progressing. And so I, I'm discouraging some of the online events. Let's learn new music, you know. Yeah, I tell that to dojo students who are participating in those a lot. You know, we have the one take rule at the dojo, which is if you're going to record yourself, you record yourself once, and whatever happens, that's what you you know, that's what you should send in. And we, we do that for our internal recordings that we send around. But I, I'm stressing to people who are doing these online competitions, like have the courage to stick with that for these online competitions too. And don't get into the, people get into this rut where they record 14, 15, 16, 17 times and they still don't get one they're happy with. Uh, and then maybe they do it again the next day. <laughs> Uh, and then, you know, you have to stop doing that, you know, let, let the competition be, you know, a reflection. So record yourself once and yeah, if it's an utter train wreck, do it twice, but that should be it, you know, and then, and then you have to move on with your life. I think that's a real uh, potential downside of what's going on here is, uh, first of all, like you're getting not realistic examples of, of how people play. Uh, and, and then, well, that's, that, that's, that's ethical too, isn't it? It's ethical. Yeah. Uh, as far as, yeah. Uh, uh, trying to simulate what goes on on the platforms outside the games or what have you. I got a, an extension of that, which really, I don't know how to curb it. I require through the pandemic, especially every student to send me a recording of their week's tunes a couple of days ahead of the lesson. And then the lesson becomes a product of review, and they can hear it. I'm trying to get them to hear what they're playing. But I have students that will tell me that they've recorded it six or seven times. And I said, I don't want that. I don't want a polished performance. I want something that we can work on. If you gave me a perfect performance, our lessons are over. You know, yeah. the period. The, the, they don't get that. It's not a question of producing your best. It's producing who you are. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and uh, and that uh, bodes, I think, for the online events. Uh, at the judging seminar last week, we, I think we had a, over 150 international judges uh, on a Zoom call. It went on for uh, seven hours during the day, uh, and it was fabulous. But one of the solo uh, panels uh, did discuss the ethics of the online events as well. And I agree with what you're doing at Dojo, no question about it. Yeah. So. It and it's weird. It's like, I don't know if it's technically unethical to record yourself a thousand times because I think a lot of people are doing that. But the thing I stress to my students is I guarantee you the people who are winning your event did not have to record more than two or three times. Guarantee. <laughs> I promise That's you. That's right. Because the reason they're yeah. winning, the reason they're winning is because you know, uh, is because it's a reflection of how they currently play. And the reason you're going to win or not is not going to have anything to do with how many tries, right? It's, on, it's only going to have to do with how good you currently are. And that's really it. Yep. And, and the other thing I think any judge will tell you is, uh, you know, slight imperfections 
are with the possible exception of the very, very highest level, like professional level, slight imperfections are never the reason an event is won or lost. You, yep, I agree, agree with you 100%, you know, and uh, I just listened to the uh, uh, the Trad Music Awards uh, online from uh, the UK, uh, maybe three or four weeks ago on a Saturday, and they recorded, the finalists recorded in the studio live that on that day. Mm -hmm. It was great. They get one chance at it. And that just said to me, I said, this is what it's all about. The Peel Police up here ran uh, an online contest with um, Microsoft Rooms, where they brought the people in live in front of the judge and the judge could talk to them. And I thought this was uh, the best simulation of what goes on online. Um, most of them are taking pre-recorded stuff and loaded up to YouTube and away you go. Um, so, um, you know, whatever it happened to be, it's filling a void that we definitely need right now. It's not helping the pipe bands much. So I, I've had some thoughts on, the, and this was perhaps what spawned the movie uh, with Murray Blair, was that um, uh, maybe for pipe bands, if we get away from the competition for the time being and put get into the entertainment aspect of it and using uh, the the web for that, hence the movie. But that the I'll tell you what really got me going on the idea was what uh, St. Lawrence O'Toole were doing early on in the pandemic with putting band performances of a single tune together, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, and they did their Highland Wedding Hornpipe, for example, and said, oh, that's good. Then the Keith Highlanders out in the West, they did a fabulous uh, production. I said, yeah. this is entertainment. And you know what? I listen to their performance at least 10 times. I love it Yeah. Uh, because it's fresh and it gets the whole band um, in some way tied into performance. And I, I, I think um, that, uh, as, and then SFU just this week, did you see the new SFU one Ooh, up, uh, this week? I saw it, but I haven't heard it yet. That's a good, yeah, that's a good. good reminder. It's a good reminder. I got to go check that out. Oh yeah. It's uh, check it out. It's also, you're going to see, uh, for anything that we do going forward, how important um, a good level of video camera is mm -hmm. for, and you'll and you'll see it in all these mass productions. Some people have great uh, video equipment, others don't, and you'll see it. It comes up in the four there. So, you, but yeah, have it listen to it. It's very very good, and it, again, it's entertaining, um, and I think uh, that's perhaps something that can get the bands together. Uh, you know, and it gets us away from the competition. The competition will be there, but keeping the bands fresh so that they can compete when it breaks is an important thing. And uh, I don't know many other ways of doing it. Yeah. This hiatus uh, from competing is is a definite uh, downer. Uh, uh, and it takes uh, bands away from their competitive edge. So yeah. uh means when you get back up again, it's going to be a real challenge, you know, no I, question about it. I was kind of, you know, I was, I was hoping that maybe, and, and, and there, <laughs> there's still time, I think, Ken, if you know what I mean. But uh, I was hoping that uh, the quarantine would like get the different groups, different bands to, to really like stop and reflect on what they have been doing and like how things might be different in a positive way when this does end. And, you know, uh, I think I'm slightly disappointed in, uh, along those lines. Like, you know, for example, for a band, you know, there's lots of ways to use COVID to your advantage. I just don't see bands doing it. Maybe there I are. Agree. Maybe I just don't see them. But, you know, like. No, no. But, uh, you know, if. if Now, gr granted, I do run a local grade three band. But uh, 
uh, let's just say I don't think anyone's that motivated. But, you know, if your band is motivated, if every individual player worked on leveling up as an individual during this two year hiatus, uh, that could make your band way better. Uh, if people decided to go back to basics, you know, uh, and take this time to just kind of do a reset, you know, that could be really valuable, but I don't really, I don't, I don't, I haven't seen that much of that. It's mainly just like people getting together on zoom and just trying to do something to keep it going. But, uh, I don't yep. know. I don't uh, know. I know. No, I think your observation is correct. I, uh, I don't see it either. Um, and I had a discussion, uh, not unlike what we're doing right now, um, a few weeks ago, and I can't remember who it was with. Uh, it was somebody associated with the RSPBA. Uh, and the bottom line was uh, bands are losing players because of inactivity. Uh, marginal players are finding something out. It might it might be Netflix for all we know. Right. Uh, it might be listening to uh, us talking on the on on the web right now. The fact is they're not practicing. The pipes are in the box. So and I and even solo players. And I had a good example on one of my students that was going to compete online, and it's going to be a Pebrick event, right? Great. I know the student understood the Pebrick, played the Pebrick really well, but has been doing all her online stuff with me on. Uh, on Chatter. The pipes have been lying in the box for a few weeks. And all of a sudden, getting the pipes out becomes a physical event. Right. And the performance level was nowhere close, and the frustration was very high. Uh, and I'd, I'd count an awful lot of people in bands that way. Uh, my youngest student did a recital in, in Toronto online uh, for the Gallic Society uh, two weeks ago, and he was famous. It was really, really good. But here's the point. A week before that, he, he, I asked him to record his performance, and it was so bad because of the sound of the pipes, it wasn't worth listening to. And I said, when was the last time you played your pipes? He says, three months ago. I says, well, you've got now seven days to get the bags seasoned, to get the bridles reset on the drones, get a new chanter read in there, and play, play, and play to get that instrument where you want. Well, he's so motivated, he understood. But it was a great lesson for him. But that's 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 the norm I, I'm afraid of. Uh, and you're and you're right. And so some some will go by the wayside. Mm -hmm. Others won't, won't be well rehearsed at all. So getting the band back together will be a challenge, you know. Uh, uh, and I'm I'm guilty to some degree. I went through the Christmas period not playing my pipes right now, uh, at the time. But uh, I said, really, this isn't good. Uh, nothing better than playing on a uh, a pipe that's been played all the time, you know. So <clears throat> yeah, that it's. I've been on the uh, I've been on the teaching pipe, which has got the nice Camor bag on it. So I haven't ah. had I haven't had to do a lot of like maintenance or heavy duty stuff. But I'm trying to keep a couple of tunes going each day. There we go. There it. Oh, the Blair. It's the Blair. <laughs> ah, hey, there she is. Yeah, and that's it's. It's always at my feet, and I, I, I've always got it attached to one of the speakers here in the room. Yeah. And uh, and and it, let me tell you though, it has brought another dimension of entertainment and enjoyment, and it's uh um, and learning tunes. So and you know and for my students that are using it, uh, they're now they're ear is getting tuned to perfect intervals yes oh that, that, that's magic right. so i think it's going to pay dividends for them too you know yeah well let, uh, let's hope so yeah it certainly is a uh it's an amazing 
Murray's not paying us to say this, Kent, but it is an amazing product. <laughs> no, he, uh, he's in he's in he's in bed right now. Yeah, yeah. And uh, like like uh, who can beat uh, Alex C. McGregor? Hey, what do well, you think? Well, yeah. Well, there it is. I mean, uh, that was a Murray a Murray Blair Chanter project that I did, and um, yeah, it's pretty cool. So people, so you've been getting the positive feedback on that on the. Uh, oh yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, um, now a, a general thing. Uh, this this is a criticism of a lot of piping people. They're quick to judge, aren't they? Rather than quicker to enjoy. Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of interesting because people always got, uh, they want their favorite three or so. So I get a lot of feedback that way. In other words, performances that they really enjoyed. Um, and um, without naming any any of them, because there's every performance has its great features. And we, we enjoyed putting all this together. Um, and it's going to be entertainment for a lifetime. But I got numerous uh, uh, kudos back to the opening scene with you and Alex C. McGregor. But the funniest one was I got a, a letter from somebody saying, what was the name of the tune Andrew played? <laughs> and uh, so I just had to shake my head. I said, uh, obviously, he, di he didn't he wasn't listening to me because I, I told I, I my my voiceover was. Andrew Douglas playing the great, uh, real Alex C. McGregor, you know? Yeah. Uh, but he, ha he knows it now, and I, I, I tell him where to find it. But the, uh, the, the positive feedback from how the movie was put together from the get-go, and that involved 100% you and the, the lead-in through uh, Kansas City, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, and Murray, Murray did a great job putting it together, too. You know, uh, when they – when it might have been you – or Murray first asked me to get involved. I was, uh, I was hesitant at first because I thought that the editing that, that people were hoping I would edit that. I mean, that is a monster project that uh, I think Murray basically did. Um, and so like kudos to him. I mean, that's, you, that's a labor of love to say the least, you know, to edit that well, video um, together. How, how it got, it got, uh, it got going from a conversation that Beth Wilson and I had, I think I told you that. Then she phoned Murray to see if he, if he'd be on board. And it, um, I described the project as a, uh, a, a, a black hole in outer space. Once you get into it, you don't know how far you're going to yeah. travel, you know, yeah. and it took five months. Murray provided all the technical expertise and he uses uh he uses uh first or uh, final cut pro uh and he's and comes up with a lot of creative ideas on it uh so a lot of things that had to be overcome and in going forward and doing projects like this people must realize and you've already suggested it to me high resolution video and high definition uh audio is absolutely fundamental when you put yeah. a project like this together and you, you got different frame rates and you've got different qualities of recordings it's very hard to merge them into one uniform program murray was just superb but a lot of headaches along the way i, I can assure yeah. you that uh and he had bounced things over we we worked on a a file uh a site that we could drop all our files into the one site so he'd drop them in in the morning for him and i'd get them at night and i would review them and we'd talk about them, and then we'd make suggestions which way to go. And then he'd go back to the drawing board. So this went on, and there were some uh, some issues with. Uh, uh, well, can you imagine uh, five pipers playing the Pedrick and uh, slightly different in the pitch of the channers? And yeah. that means all the drones are at a slightly different pitch and well. So you've got to come up with some mastery there. Uh, 
privately, I'll tell you how Murray handled that. He, he's a magician. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, and same with the drummers and what have you. Uh, and uh, and every, every individual performance uh, had some issues in the recording, and he had to uh, look at the frame rates that were creating it, and so on. So, and then the communication, and uh, uh, as far as like your situation coming on board, Murray and I discussed who at the very beginning. Murray contacted you right off uh, okay, right off the bat. That was on our so our master list. I and I. Um, uh, I I followed up with uh, most of the other players and getting the the Vox Pops going on it as well. Uh, I hate to tell you, I think we got about 150 videos uh, on the uh, came in for this. And at the same time, uh, I can't tell you how many people we contacted for, you know, say a few words type of thing. And they all came through really good, you know. Awesome. And, yeah. and it g gave us variety. So it's a it's a lesson. Um, the next time we're through, and that's why when it was done, we took two days off, and Murray says, let's get something else going. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. but, <laughs> now that's passion. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, I'm sure you you learn, uh, you learn that it can be done, and you learn what to do and what not to do, too. So you'll have momentum going into the next thing, I think, as well. So that'll be Oh, good. that's right. Yeah. 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 So, uh, so Ken, what, what do you say we wrap this up? Thanks for, uh, yep. you know, thanks for testing this. We had a couple of technical things, but I think... I think uh, I should be able to get it ironed out. And I, I just feel like, you know, have, having chats with Pipers is something that hasn't been able to happen a lot uh, during COVID. Yeah. So, so just to do Before, that, just to do that together, I think is pretty cool. And, and other people can be a fly on the wall and maybe get something out of this. Hey, everybody. Andrew Douglas here from the Pipers Dojo. And I just want to say thanks so much for listening to today's iteration of the podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard here today, it would be super helpful to us and to a lot of bagpipers out there trying to find us. If you could give us a top-notch review on whatever platform you're using to listen to this podcast, particularly Apple, iTunes, and Spotify, and things like that, your review would be really, really helpful. So if you have a moment today, definitely go over there and help us out. Other than that, until we meet again on the podcast or somewhere else, thanks again for listening.